Well, we are making our way through 2 Timothy, and we have three uh, instructions left. This is the 20th instruction. Uh, let's just orientate ourselves again to the, to the book itself. And 2 Timothy's uh, structure is very simple. It's divided into two main sections. The first section talks about enduring opposition. You'll remember that uh, 2 Timothy is written because Timothy implemented 1 Timothy. And as a result, people in his church were resisting him, and they were resisting the letter that Paul had written to him. They were resisting the word of God, and and factions were developing in the church, and there was great opposition. So from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 14, we see the first half of this book is is basically an encouragement to Timothy, saying, you know, keep going. You, You must endure this resistance, endure this opposition. Uh, Don't stop Stay busy making disciples. Find those who want to be discipled and disciple them. Then we come to the second half of uh, the book. And if the first half is all about enduring this opposition, the second half is uh, addressing this opposition. You can't just allow the the opposition to fester and grow and get worse and, and just sort of ignore the factions that are growing in the church. And so step one, endure it. Step two, well, you have to address it. So last week we took a look and we saw that the 19th instruction was you need to address all conflict in the church by the word of God. You can't just come up with your own ideas. You can't just try and, by by the power of your own charm and personality, try and smooth things out. Uh, What a lot of Christians, I think, would like to do, probably a lot of churches, is step away from the Word of God. It's the Word of God, after all, that caused the conflict in the first place. You'll remember that that the conflict is because Timothy had implemented 1 Timothy. So the idea in a lot of minds, a lot of hearts, is, well, doctrine divides. The Word of God divides. Therefore, let's step away from doctrine. Let's step away from the truth. Let's step away from the Word of God. and, And Sing kumbaya, and hopefully everybody will be happy. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, you have to endure it, and you have to address it. Now, last week, uh, we looked at the very gruesome, very difficult image of having to treat a patient who has gangrene. And the hard reality is sometimes, and these are in extreme cases, A compassionate doctor has to amputate part of the body in order to save the life of the person, of the the body, the patient. So it is in the church. And today builds on that exhortation. Um, But what we're going to see Paul doing is he kind of is going back and forth. He says, endure the factions, right? Get busy with the people that are faithful, but... You do have to address the factions, and that's where you get the gangrene. And now we're going to see the first movement today is, but you have to be kind and gentle and patient. And then we're going to end and say, but there is a limit. So in chapter 2, right through to the end of uh, 3 verse 9, you see Paul kind of going back and forth a little bit. And he doesn't give absolute benchmarks to say, oh, if you see this, then you're, you know, in the more aggressive form of addressing church conflict. But if you're here, you can endure and be patient. What it, what it requires is a plurality of elders, 
each with different personalities, each with different temperaments, discussing the issues, praying to God about the issues, and calling on God to give wisdom and making a call. Where are we in this particular instance? Are we in the enduring patiently or are we in the cutting off for the sake of the body? And that can be a very difficult call to make. It would be very difficult to know, well, which one do we employ? And most elders teams, you'll find people that are more prone to, well, let's just keep enduring. And then there are others on the team who will say, no, we need to go to surgery. And, and there are particular bents, so it's really helpful to have a plurality, a group of men, just like parenting, right? Sometimes one parent We'll say, I've had enough with, with my child's behavior. And then the other parent will come, yeah, but you know, have you considered these factors? I think we need to just persevere a little bit longer, whatever. So just as parenting is a team effort, so eldering is a team effort. And when we talk about church discipline, we need the wisdom of God, the grace of God, and one another's help. So today's instruction then is... Uh, the 20th instruction is this, exercise church discipline. As I already hinted, today's text can be divided into two very distinct halves. And the contrast between these two halves is very apparent. So much so that, what ha well, there's a chapter break, right, where we flip from one to the other, right? So you have chapter 2, 22 through uh, 26, and then you have chapter 3, uh, 1 to 9, so much so that chapter 3, 1 to 9 often doesn't get read in, in concert with the end of chapter 2. But when Paul was writing the letter, there was no chapter break. It just flows together. And so we're going to take a look at why would it, would it be that Paul would put these two uh, portions of today's text that are very different in tone right beside each other. Uh, the juxtaposition is stark. It's startling. And it's very obvious. It's critical as a church that we always read these two halves together. You will necessarily do yourself a disservice if you read chapter 3, 1 to 9 without also reading it in light of chapter 2, 22 through 26. Likewise, we do ourselves a disservice if we read the end of chapter 2 as if chapter 3 doesn't exist. So you have those two halves that, that are contrasting one another, and when you're considering, as elders, how to exercise church discipline, you need to talk about both. So today's sermon is, we're going to take a look at four aspects of the contrast between these two halves. And then from those four contrasts, we're going to make five observations about church discipline. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the bulletin, we have an overview of the sermon. So, for some sermon notes, that might help you to follow along where we are. And we have the same sort of thing in the children's, uh, children, the youth notes. So, take a look at those. All right, let's take a look at these four contrasts. So, so the first contrast, so in the first half, the end of chapter 2 is the more tender section, right? It's endure, be patient, be kind. Now, the second half is, but there are people who are so entrenched in sin that you have to deal with them. So that's sort of just the very rough, 
big picture view of these two halves. Let's take a little bit closer look at these two sections. So the first contrast that I want us to identify is the contrast on, that deals with factions in the church. Uh, faction by itself is not necessarily a negative word. If there's a faction, there's a negative faction, but that faction necessarily means there will also be a positive faction. In one place, Paul says, I'm not surprised that there are divisions and factions among you, for how else would you know who's on the right side? So, so let's take a look at these two factions. When church discipline needs to kick into gear, it's because there's a negative faction and a positive faction. So in the first half of today's preaching text, Paul describes the positive faction. Take a look at verse 22. At the end of 22, he says that this faction are those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So when there's conflict in the church, there should always remain a group of people in spite of the conflict, in spite of the faction, who continue to call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, these people are further qualified or described by Paul. Take a look at the beginning of verse 22. Those who call on the Lord from a pure heart are those who flee youthful passions. So, so Paul there is saying, you, Timothy, you as the pastor, you as one of the elders, you as my apostolic representative, you must flee youthful passions. Now, we know that this is also true of those who pursue God with a pure heart. Because he says you are to do that along with those people. So this is not just a quality, a character quality in Timothy, but it's a character quality in the positive faction in the Ephesian church. They flee youthful passions. What is a youthful passion? This is, we often automatically think sexual passions. I don't think that's in view here because sexuality is not addressed in the broader context. But if you go back up to verse 14, we're told that Timothy is to remind the church of these things, that is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Keep things in perspective. And as the pastor, Timothy, was to exhort the church, let's keep things in perspective. Let's not quarrel about words. Because that does no good. It only ruins the hearers. And then look at verse 16. He says, I want you, Timothy, to avoid irreverent babble. That is, talk that doesn't build up the church. It doesn't actually glorify God. It doesn't help us to love one another. That's irreverent babble, heresy. That which undercuts the gospel. Now, a youthful passion, especially in leadership, is to uh, address quarreling about words in a reverent babble with quarreling about words and with some more babble. It's very easy to get drawn into these things. And it can be so uh, exasperating to hear uh, all of this quarreling about words. It can be exasperating to hear the irreverent babble that the impulse of a young leader is to get involved, to entangle himself in the conflict. 
And, and all that does is escalate the problem. And so at the very beginning of today's text, Paul says, if you're going to exercise church discipline, you cannot flee, uh, you cannot pursue youthful passions. That is getting yourself entangled in these uh, disputes that do no good, but only ruin everybody that listens. Uh, if you're going to lead, if you're going to exercise discipline, your words must do some good. And not ruin the hearers. Now we're going to see that that does not mean that Timothy is not to address these things. But the way he addresses them is not to get entangled in them as a participant in the quarrel. And what we're going to see is he's going to shut it down. You shut it, if it gets to the point of heresy, you shut it down. You don't get entangled, you shut it down. But you don't get entangled. Uh, a couple more things about this positive faction... Uh, you do not pursue youthful passions, rather pursue righteousness. Focus on the gospel. Remember the, the, the righteousness that God has imputed. And so the good faction is constantly going back and trying to remember, well, let's remember the gospel. Jesus died for my sin so that my sin would be counted to him and his righteousness would be counted to me. It changes a lot of things. Faith, continually, Timothy, join those who call on the Lord with a pure heart by exercising faith. Walk by faith. Know the gospel. Love. As we're going to see, the, the negative faction, the faction that tears a church apart, is not characterized by love. And love is this, to, to love others even when they don't love you. Peace, peace with God and peace with one another. These are the things that characterize those who are uh, seeking God or calling on the Lord with a pure heart. Now, what's the other faction then? If that's the good faction, when there's conflict in a church, there should always be some people that are endeavoring to do that. And they're not doing that perfectly, but that's their goal. That's their heartbeat. That's what they want. By contrast, take a look at chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. The faction that is causing problems are characterized with these 19 qualities. So if we had uh, five qualities characterizing the, the faction that is calling on the Lord from a pure heart. There's 19 things that characterize uh, the faction that is tearing the church apart. And it's not that that faction has to necessarily um, exhibit all of these things. And this itself is not an exhaustive list. But what Paul really wants Timothy to know is there's just bad people that will infiltrate the church. You need to be aware of that. Verse 2 to 5. There will be people who are lovers of self. There will be people who are lovers of money. Proud people. Arrogant. Abusive. There will be those who are disobedient to their parents. There will be those who are ungrateful, ungrateful to God for what He's done through Christ, ungrateful to the church for the things the church is trying to do. There will be unholy people, 
people who take advantage and of the gospel of grace and don't seek holiness. There will be heartless people, unappeasable people. People, it doesn't matter what you do, they're never happy or satisfied. There will be slanderous people who say things, who gossip and say things that are partially true but not wholly true. There will be those without self-control. There will be brutal people. I see that as the opposite of merciful, meek. Be those who don't actually love the good. Be treacherous people and reckless people. Those who are swollen with conceit. Thinks that their ways are the best ways and the only ways. There'll be those who love pleasure more than they love God. Then perhaps the, the most difficult of these 19, there will be those who have the appearance of godliness. But they deny its power. I, I just don't have time to get into defining 19 of those things. You, you get the general trend, right? These are all characteristics that are in opposition to the gospel. They're the opposite of what Christ calls us to. They're the opposite of who Jesus is. I do want to just address this appearance of godliness but deny its power. How do you... How do you identify someone who has an appearance of godliness, but they actually deny the power of godliness? That is, they deny the power of the gospel. These people uh, seem to do the right things. They come to church. Uh, they're, they're pious people. They go through, they have the marks of religiosity. Uh, they may be more morally upright than some other people in the church. So how do you identify them? It's really hard. And, and you've got to be very slow to try and identify someone who has that kind of a situation or, or characteristic. But what really would strike someone is if, if wherever they go, conflict follows them. It doesn't matter where they are, they're in conflict. They, it doesn't matter which relationship they're engaged in, for some reason, it's breaking down. Legalism would be another way that you're looking for someone who has a, a form of godliness, because legalism is the greatest form of godliness. Look at all of the things I do. Uh, people who put themselves under the old covenant and are more comfortable under the Mosaic law than they are under the gospel of grace. Uh, people who are scared of grace because it's too risky. You can't give people that much freedom. All of these kinds of things would characterize somebody who clearly has a form of godliness, but they're afraid of the gospel. And, and they not only enslave themselves to the Old Covenant, but they want to enslave others to the Old Covenant. It's a classic problem that Jesus faced with the Pharisees. Uh, it's what Paul calls in Romans the stumbling stone. And so we have to be very careful, and we have to constantly be looking in on ourselves. Do we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power to change us? The list of these people 
shows that they are stubbornly entrenched in sin. We all sin. Uh, you may have noticed some of those things that, that once characterized you, or maybe even recently, ah, oh, man, I've done that. What Paul is getting at with this list of 19 is these are people who are entrenched in sin. Uh, they refuse to be corrected. They refuse to allow the, the grace of God to wash over them and to change them, to transform them, to regenerate them. They are stubbornly opposed to God, the preaching of the gospel, and the freedom that comes with grace. So that's the first faction, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart and those who are entrenched in sin. Contrast number two. Let's take a look at the leadership of each faction. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. The Lord's servant, so this is the leadership of the faction, the good faction that seeks after the Lord from a pure heart. So the Lord's servant who is leading this faction must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So the leadership of the faction that is healthy in a church is not quarrelsome. They, they're not looking for fights. They don't want to just argue about doctrine for the sake of arguing about doctrine. The leadership is kind. They want what is in the best interest of everyone. They don't have a chip on their shoulder. They're not looking to bring people down. They are able to teach. You need to have someone who is leading those who are calling on the Lord from a pure heart, who knows the Scriptures, and is able to teach others what the Scriptures say. And as they're teaching the Scriptures, they're patient with those who don't understand. They're patient with those who, who would slander them and, and do evil things against them. Well, we'll patiently endure with that. We're not going to... Uh, slap down every offense. And those opponents who would rise up against the leaders of this healthy faction will seek to correct their opponents with gentleness. Now, a word about gentleness. Gentleness does not mean soft. Gentleness, I think I've said this before, is a word that uh, would be used in the, in the medical profession, if I go to a doctor with a broken arm, let's say it's severely broken, the doctor will reset my arm with gentleness. That is, I expect him or her to use only as much force as is necessary. So, so the leaders of the healthy faction, when correcting opponents will only use as much force as necessary. They will not overdo it. But they will not underdo it either. Because if they underdo it, if they don't meet the opposition with as much force as is necessary, then the, force, uh, the, the oppositional force gains momentum and strength, which is not what Paul has in mind here. He's not saying just sort of, uh, very politely, very genteel uh, in your approach to sort of say, you know, I would really like it if you had a different opinion. That's not gentleness. Gentleness is coming along and say, you have a misunderstanding about the Scriptures, and I'd like to talk to you about it. Are you willing to talk to me? Oh, you are? Oh, that's great. Okay, let's open our Bibles. Can I just walk you through this? Oh, yeah, you will let me do that. That's wonderful. Now, what do you understand that to mean? Well, you're slightly off. 
What it actually means is this. Take your time, think about it for a week or two, let's get back together. That's gentleness. Uh, Or let me give you another example of gentleness. Uh, I think you have something wrong. You you said something that, that is contrary to the gospel. I'd like to talk to you about it. And if the person says, no, I will not talk about it, well, that's very serious that you won't sit down with me and open your Bible. And I'm going to have to talk to the elders about that because it's really important that we correct your understanding in this matter. See, that's gentleness. It's a different level of force. And so uh, the leadership of the healthy faction is always seeking to build up the church. Correct the church using only as much force as necessary and will patiently endure those who slander and uh, do works of evil against them. Now let's take a look at the leadership of the unhealthy faction and we see their approach in chapter 3 verses 6 through 9. For among them, that is among this unhealthy faction are those, that's the leadership There are leaders of this unhealthy faction, and these leaders creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, do you see the difference in the approach of the two leaderships of the two factions? Uh, the, The leadership of the unhealthy faction, they creep. What does that mean? Well, they they try to do it under the radar. They're sneaky. They're strategic. They're not doing it out in the open. Uh, They're they're going behind the the backs of the elders. In in this example, they're going behind the backs of even the husbands and the fathers of the households. And and they're looking for the most vulnerable. In the case given here, it's the women in the the homes who have no protection of their their husbands to help them to understand the the right doctrine. No, No protection of the male elders of the church to help them. And what's happening is these false teachers, these leaders of this unhealthy faction, are looking for vulnerable women. And if we could just get a handful of vulnerable women to follow us, they'll make life miserable for their husbands, they'll disciple their children, and we can gain some momentum. That's just a terrible, rotten, evil kind of leadership. It's insubordinate to the authorities that God has set up, husbands and male elders, it seeks to capture the vulnerable members of the church. They're not going to talk to, to the, those who are grounded in the faith. They're going to those who aren't sure. The, those who are obviously struggling with sin. Right? And it's not just women, by the way. The, the, the leaders of this unhealthy faction will look for any vulnerable people. And, and Paul defines what these vulnerable people uh, are characterized by. They're, they're people who are burdened with sins. So... so the, the leadership of the unhealthy faction will look for people who are obviously burdened with their sins, people who carry guilt and shame. We're going to go after those people, say the leaders of that faction, those who are led away by various passions, people who, uh, by their speech and their behavior, obviously don't have control. Their lives are clearly not in line with the gospel that is being preached from the pulpit. People who are always learning, they come and they write down all kinds of things, but their life doesn't change. They're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the kind of people that the leaders of these unhealthy factions will target. 
so the question for all of us is, well, or the challenge is to know when somebody is doing that. And the, the most obvious way to identify that is when somebody tries to lead apart from the oversight of the elders. And it may not be intentional, but that's what the leaders of this faction do. Paul then says they're just like Janus and Jambres who oppose Moses. Janus and Jambres are not mentioned in the Bible, but by the time Paul wrote this, those were the names associated with the two priests in Pharaoh's court. When, when Moses went and laid down his staff and it became a serpent, and then Janus and Jambres laid down their staffs, they became serpents. And so everyone said, well, I, who do we believe? We've got conflicting leadership here. And what happened? Moses' serpent what? Ate up the other two. And it became obvious who was right and wrong, who was empowered by God and who was not. And so just as those two priests opposed Moses, so these men, these, the leaders of this faction opposed the truth. They're men corrupted in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So these people prey on the weak. They, they oppose the leadership. They oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith. Uh, and, but they won't get very far. You see, that's the contrast between the two leaderships. One is looking to build up the church. The other is trying to steal people from the church. One uh, group is doing it in the open in front of everyone, the other is sneaky, going behind backs, subverting the, 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 the headship of husbands and elders. Contrast number three. What's the goal of the leadership of each faction? Well, we see the goal of the, healthy, of the leadership of the healthy faction in verse 25 of chapter 2. So the leadership is cor uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? What's the goal? Well, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The goal of the leadership of the healthy faction of the church is to liberate those who are enslaved by Satan. It's liberation. It's not opposition for opposition's sake. Uh, Timothy and a, a pastor and elders, those who are seeking to be the servants of Christ, their goal is not to oppose anyone, but to liberate everyone, to give everyone the same freedom that, that they have received from Christ, to help them to enjoy the depths of the gospel of grace, just as they enjoy the depths of the gospel of grace. By contrast... The goal of the leadership of the unhealthy faction, we see it in the second half of chapter 3, verse 6. So they're creeping into households. Why? To capture weak women who are already burdened with sin, who are led away by various passions. They're always learning, never able to arrive at the truth. The, the goal 
of the leadership of the unhealthy faction is to capture the vulnerable, to further enslave the vulnerable, to take them away from Christ. Now, they may not know that that's what their goal is, but that is what their goal. If somebody is trying to steal a member of the church away from a pastor and elders who are trying to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, what they are doing by definition, even if they don't know it, is trying to capture and enslave them away from Christ. Anyone who would try to steal a vulnerable Christian from a healthy church is doing the bidding of Satan. And we live in a world, in the church, in the Western world, that says that the the local church is not all there is. And we live in a world that says that there is this higher category called the universal church. And if I'm not getting my way in the local church, I'm just going to pop out into the universal church. There is no such category. Now, I am not denying the reality of the universal church. But what I am denying is that there is ever an existence in the universal church apart from a local church. You cannot be outside of a local church and be inside the universal church. That is not how God has set up the church. So anyone who takes themselves out from under the leadership of a local church and is floating in the universal church and tries to take you with them, they are not doing the work of Christ. No matter how good their intentions are. Now, can you go from local church to local church? Absolutely. You're not, quote-unquote, stuck in any given local church. And there is a right way and a wrong way to go from local church to local church. And if you want to go from this local church to another local church, I would like to be able to bless you with the elders in that transfer. And so, in keeping with ecclesiology, New Testament ecclesiology, that is just the doctrine of the church as it is in the New Testament... To go from one church to another church, you must go to your elders and say, for this reason and that reason, I would like to go to another church. And then the elders will interact with you about that. So I I say this because the temptation here is to read this and say, I've never met anybody like that. (laughs) I don't know any, any leaders of unhealthy factions like that. And my question is, are you sure? We come to the fourth contrast. The exercise of church discipline. We see the exercise uh, of church discipline within the healthy faction in verses 24 and 25. This is healthy church discipline. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then keep going, we see the goal. The goal is, right, repentance, which will lead to a knowledge of the truth, that the person will come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. Now, 
there is a more difficult side to church discipline. And this is when patience runs out. So having said those, those words that I think is very important that we exercise church discipline that way, Paul then continues, and what is the first word of chapter 3? But. But what? It's important, Timothy. You're the Lord's servant. Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. Teach. Patiently endure evil. Correct your opponents with gentleness. But. I need you to understand this. In the last days, that is, from the time of Pentecost until the return of Christ, there will be people for whom you cannot exercise that kind of church discipline. It won't work. You can be as kind and gentle and patient and long-suffering with these kinds of people, but it will not work. Therefore, says Paul, time will come out. And then he lists 19 things. There are, there are 19 qualities for which that kind of church discipline will not work. So, so you start there, you make every effort there, but you come to a point where you say, well, this is not working. We're just going around and around and around, and how long are we supposed to put up with this? And really, I think the biggest piece to understanding how long is saying, well, when that behavior is shown to be unteachable, in Titus, Paul says, warn him once, warn him twice, then that's it. So three times, three strikes and you're out. And secondly, when, when the correction isn't being taken and the people are beginning to infect others, which takes us back to last week, right? You've got to act. And how are we supposed to act? You go down to the end of verse 5. Avoid such people. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean as the leader of the church who has been called to exercise church discipline, well, going the, the route of patience, gentleness, and endurance isn't working. Therefore, just put your head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. That's not what avoid such people means. It means break fellowship with such people. And that's hard. It's really hard. You see a great contrast there. In light of these four contrasts, and let's just review what they were. Factions, there's going to be, whenever there's church conflict, there's going to be a healthy faction, and then one or several unhealthy factions. Contrast number two, the leadership of each faction. The leadership of the healthy faction wants, uh, wants to liberate everyone in the church and outside of the church to enjoy the fullness of the gospel that has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. The leadership of the unhealthy factions wants to capture people for their own ego, their own uh, whatever it is, their sense of self. They want to feel good that they've taken some people with them or, or they have some people who are following them too or they can exercise some authority also. 
They want to capture and further enslave people. Then the contrast of church discipline. Well, do it gently with kindness and endurance, perseverance, teaching, but there will come a time, contrast, when you must break fellowship. So from this, then, we have five observations, and most of the work has been done, so this is by way of conclusion. Observation number one about church discipline. Church discipline has a positive dimension to it. When we think about church discipline, it's always like, oh, church discipline. It just feels so heavy and uh, authoritarian and uh, maybe paternalistic and aggressive. We just don't like the idea of church discipline on its face because those are the ideas that come to mind. But it's really important that we see what this text says about church discipline. There is a positive dimension to church discipline. And let's talk about this in two ways. One, one way that church discipline is positive is that it exhorts the pure in heart. It exhorts those who really do want to follow the Lord. And church discipline is easy, and it's a joy to those who, who really want to follow the Lord. They have really good intentions. And so church discipline is just a matter of reminding them of good doctrine, teaching them the gospel over and over again, encouraging them to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. And those who are inclined to that will welcome the discipline. They'll say, yes, that's what I want to do. And it doesn't have to be heavy-handed. It can just be very gentle and, and easy. Second aspect to church discipline that is positive is that it is the protection for the weak and the vulnerable. Church discipline is in place because not everyone has the faculties of discernment that they ought to have. And so elders are called to exercise church discipline not only in a punitive way against the faction or the leaders of the faction, but to protect the vulnerable. It's put in place to to take care of uh, those who don't have a fully developed understanding of the gospel. And that way, it's extremely loving. Church discipline has a positive dimension to it. Observation number two, church discipline has a negative dimension to it. That doesn't mean it's bad. I don't mean negative in the sense that church discipline is bad, but it it comes with a negative side as well. It comes with teaching and correcting. Even when done patiently and gently, sometimes the the leaders of the church will have to sit down with any one of us and and say, you know, I think you've got that wrong. I want to rebuke you and correct you and admonish you because of your understanding of doctrine or because of your behavior. It's part of church discipline. Um. It also has this word avoiding, avoid such people, and that is as negative as it gets because that means breaking fellowship. In the extreme case, church discipline leads to a break in fellowship. There's nothing worse than that. I mean, Christ has died for us all. One gospel, one cross, one Savior, one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He's poured his spirit out on all of us. Spirit's dwelling in all of us. We are called to one hope and one faith. So to break fellowship is a disaster in the eyes of Christ. And so that's as negative as it gets. 
but it is a part of church discipline. Why? Because sometimes you have to break fellowship with a member in order to preserve the health of the rest, the body. We have no fellowship with those who are not one with Christ. Observation number three, church discipline is progressive. We don't start with the breaking of fellowship. That's, that's the last step that we take, if at all, and hopefully church discipline never gets to that point, right? So when we look at today's text, two sections highly contrasted, uh, church leadership is supposed to start at the top of today's preaching text and slowly work with someone until you find, well, are we moving from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3? And then it's only after you get down to verse 5 that you say, avoid such people, break fellowship with such people. That should, should be slow in coming about. Church discipline starts with teaching and correction that is not quarrelsome, that is kind and patient, endures evil and is gentle. If required, though, it will progress to more and more confrontation where the elders have to hold the line Speak the truth in love, but not budge from the truth of the Scriptures. And when even that confrontational meeting, sit-down happens, if there's no repentance, it will eventually lead to the breaking of fellowship. But that's progressive. You see how we start up here and we move toward that end. Observation number four. Church discipline always hopes for restoration. The goal, as we see at the end of chapter 2, is repentance. You know, endure evil, be patient, be gentle, correct your opponents gently, uh, teach them the truth. Why? Because hopefully it will lead to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. Hopefully the, the people that you are disciplining will come to their senses. And you don't want your abruptness or your personality to come between them and an opportunity for repentance. And so posture yourself and your words and your demeanor in such a way that that you don't get in the way of someone being able to come to full repentance because you want them to escape the snare of the devil. You don't want them to to, uh, break fellowship with you and continue to do the work of uh, the devil. You want them to escape the snare of the devil. But unfortunately... Some people are never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It doesn't matter how much you sit down with them or how confrontational it becomes. They will entrench themselves in their opposition and resistance. They will entrench themselves in their sinful convictions and their sinful ways. And then they will begin to prey on the weak and the vulnerable. So we hope for restoration, but it's not always possible. I just want to um, mention, because I'm sure it's in our minds, some people have left South Shore, right, in the last year. I'm not saying that this applies to all of them. I think in a lot of cases, because of the church culture in which we live, we don't understand what I said earlier, that there is no category above the local church. So I think people with very good intentions have 
left social and put themselves in a category that doesn't exist. I think that's tragic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what I've just said applies. Observation number five. Church discipline will triumph if done biblically. And we get the example of Janice and John Brace. And this was Paul's way of encouraging Timothy. Remember who Timothy is. Timothy hates conflict. He's timid by nature. He, he doesn't want to have to exercise church discipline at all, especially if it leads to confrontation and the breaking of fellowship. That's just not who he is. And so Paul ends this discussion on church discipline by encouraging him and says, look, do this, because in the end, you and the discipline that you enact in the name of Christ will be vindicated. People will see that what you've done is right, what you've done is loving, what you've done is in the best interest of those to whom you had to speak. What you have done is in the best interest of the church. Just trust me, those who oppose Christ will eventually be found out. And those who are seeking with all their might, like you, Timothy, to follow Christ and to be obedient, that will become clear as well. And it's interesting to me, and uh, Kostenberger, one of uh, the commentary writers that I read, made this observation. I liked it. He says that we see in these letters to Timothy uh, couplets of men. So you have Janice and John Brace here, but you also have in 1 Timothy 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who Paul handed over to Satan. Then you have Phygelus and Hermogenes, who abandoned Paul. And then you have Hymenaeus again and Philetus, who, who were preaching uh, falsely about the resurrection. And then you have Janus and Jambres. And so all of these couplets of men, Paul is putting up as antithesis to Paul and Timothy. And Paul and Timothy, Paul is saying with this exhortation, are just walking in the ways of Moses and Aaron. And if you read the book of Numbers, a lot of people opposed Moses and Aaron. He says, you just got to keep going. We all know that Moses and Aaron were right, and Janice and John Brays were wrong. So also, people will know that Paul and Timothy were right, and these other couplets of men were wrong, and, and don't we know that today? And so the encouragement for us in the local church is to do what the Bible says, and eventually, at some point, it will become clear that those who stay close to the instructions in this book were right, and those who resisted were wrong. And that's not very Canadian to say someone is right and someone is wrong, but at the end of the day, someone is right when there is a conflict, and, so, and maybe there's blame on both sides, but ultimately if it leads to a break of fellowship, someone is right and someone is wrong. That's what, that's what this says. I'm not making that up. That's not me trying to sort of defend myself in any way, shape, or form. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy with this exhortation about Janice and Jambres. Church discipline will triumph as hard as it is if done biblically. Even though church discipline can be emotionally and spiritually and physically difficult to do. So in final conclusion, there will always be factions in God's church. There have been since the letters of the New Testament 
We've experienced it uh, in the past. We will experience it in the future. And I'm not, I don't need to be a prophet to say that to you. That's just the reality. And I'm not just saying it about us. Every local church will experience factions and conflict and opposition. In response to this reality, God instructs the leaders of the local church, the pastor and the elders, to exercise church discipline, to exhort and to protect, to correct and to confront, to be progressive in our approach, to seek with all of our hearts after repentance, and not to get between someone and their opportunity for repentance because of the way in which we handle the church discipline. And then ultimately to wait on God for final vindication, not to defend ourselves or to explain ourselves, but to seek to be faithful and obedient to Christ. This is yet another difficult passage in the pastoral epistles. And I said that was a final conclusion, but let me just give you a second final conclusion. Why are we talking about it? Well, we're going through First and Second Timothy, but why did God preserve it in the Bible? Because what is the church? The church is a group of people who've been saved by Christ. And what these two books show us is how does God want us to respond to what he has already done through the blood of Jesus Christ? And so we exercise church discipline and fulfill all of the instructions in these books, not just to do them legalistically, but in right response to the gospel of our salvation. And if we do not respond the way that First and Second Timothy ask us to respond, then we have subverted the gospel by not responding to the initiative of God in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray for um, myself and the elders especially that you would help us to exercise church discipline in a way that is in keeping uh, with your word. Help us to be patient and kind and gentle. Help us to endure evil. Help us to always hope for restoration. Uh, help us to come alongside people uh, for their good and for the good of the church. But I pray also, Lord, just as shepherds need to protect the flock, I pray that you would give us discernment, wisdom, insight to see when the flock is in danger. Uh, help us to know when we've transitioned from chapter 2 to chapter 3. And Lord, help us to be um, graceful, yet decisive, for the sake of your name, the protection of your church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, pray for us as we uh, go from here. And I would invite or encourage you to come to the Super Bowl party tonight. This is a, as I said in my email to you this week, this is a spiritual event. I mean, it doesn't seem like it. A Super Bowl party is a spiritual thing. It is because we're going to eat together there. And that's one quarter of the things that, that God has called us to do in Acts 2.42. Break bread together. It's a great way of coming together, uniting ourselves together. So watching the Super Bowl together is a spiritual activity. We hope you'll be able to come.
Uh, now I just want to pray for us. I want to pray that uh, the God of all comfort would unite us together as one body under Christ. Uh, I'm aware that these are hard messages. I just don't want you to think that that's lost on me. But it's, it's the Word of God. And we will be all the better for it if we uh, read it, wrestle with it, and do it. And so I want to pray for us that that would be the case and that we would leave here feeling encouraged and uh, that God would continue to add to our number for, uh, for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. God, I thank You for uh, this church. I love this church. And I am so thankful that you've called me to, uh, to be the pastor of this church. I pray that you would help us um, to grow more and more together uh, under the headship of Christ. That we would love one another increasingly so. That we would serve one another. That we would be willing to die for one another because of the depth of uh, the unity that you have given to us. And Lord, as we have spoken about church discipline uh, today. I pray that you would help each of us to wrestle with what is church discipline and what's its function in the life of the church. And I pray that uh, you would guard us against ever having to break fellowship with one another. I ask that you would um, bind us together, knit us together, build us up, all these things, uh, that we would be one. Uh, we would enjoy great fellowship with one another as we together fellowship with you. Uh, and Lord Jesus, we know that uh, you've done much to purchase us, and so we want to be obedient uh, to you gladly, and we want to give our lives to living out uh, the ways in which you've called us to respond to the work that you've done on our behalf on the cross. So bless these families, these men, these women, these youth, these children. Bless the babies that are about to be born to us. Uh, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Go with peace and...